Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today on Sagittarian Matters, I discuss avoiding depression, turning Japanese, and an aversion to being touched in public with cartoonists Alec Longstreth and Mari Naomi. Stay tuned. Alec Longstreth is my very good friend, personal productivity coach, and the author of Phase 7 Comics. He's also the author of Basewood and a new webcomic called The Isle of Elsie. Find him at aleclongstress.com. Alec, you're a cartoonist. That's correct. What are you known for? Uh, I draw a mini comic called Phase 7, and I drew a book called Basewood, and I'm currently drawing a web comic for kids called Isle of Elsie. Have you also drawn for Weezer? Yes, I have illustrated t-shirts, posters, and uh, designed a couple books for the band Weezer and their fan club. And are you married to comics? It does uh, have the initials D-C-E-D, draw comics every day inside my wedding ring. I'm legally married to my wife, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> comics is your mistress. Yes, I'm like Tezuka with comics and animation or whatever. You're the person who told me that even if you only draw 15 minutes a day, that's still 15 minutes of comics. Yeah, those 15 minutes add up. I like that. Alec, what is it like to date a cartoonist? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I suspect it's not easy. I don't know. Like, I guess like my first question, like, like you're on a date and the person sitting across from me is like, oh, I'm a cartoonist. I feel like my first question would be like autobio. Like, have you ever drawn autobio? And if they say yes, it's like red flag, like straight up (laughs) (laughs) because that means they're capable of like just being in that narcissistic mindset of like, and I'm saying this as an autobiographical cartoonist, we both are of just like my life is really important or like, you know, things that are happening to me right now, this is important and like other people need to know about it. Wait, question. Yeah. How should a person date a cartoonist? So if that red flag came up, I think that they need to set boundaries. Yeah. If they have concerns about being in autobio comics, they can set up boundaries around things. Yeah, just be like, like, it, it's almost like you need a comic safe word to just be like, you can't draw a comic about this. But for real, you can't draw a comic about this. Yeah, like, what is, there's there's probably a great acronym in there, like, Y-C-D-A-C-A-T, <laughs> whatever That's that really... spells out. You say, Abracadat, or whatever, and that means, like, you can't draw a comic about this. Yeah, I... I have an anecdote about that, but I'm not allowed to say it because the person told me not to say it. There so look, go. I'm not saying it. Here, they... I've got one. So I, uh, when I was in high school, I was really into the Marx Brothers, and there's uh, an old essay by Groucho Marx, and it's about like his long-suffering wife and how he's this showman his whole life, and he knows these jokes, and he tells these stories, and like being married to him is the worst because he just has to tell those jokes like over and over and over again. Um, and so, you know, he has these stories where she'll, she's just like, like normally she's like, you can't tell that story. But then, you know, like if it's an important, uh, business dinner with someone or something, she'll like give him a nod. That's like, go ahead and tell your stupid story that I've heard a thousand times. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of that dynamic. Um, 
I, you are someone who famously, in one of your comics, when you broke up with someone, as she was leaving, she yelled at you, your comics will never love you back, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a harsh and incredible last word that yeah. she was leaving. And so then you made a response comic called Your Comics Will Love You Back. Yeah, it's, it's lecture notes. Uh, Your Comics Will Love You Back. Yeah, because I was uh, about a year later, I was going up to the Center for Cartoon Studies and I had this lecture sort of about self-publishing and just getting your comics out into the world. And I was like, what am I going to call this lecture? And so that was my revenge was Your Comics Will Love You Back. Well, Your Comics Keep You Warm at Night. They could. Yeah, they're big. I can just take a big sheet of basewood originals open it up and put it on me like a tent i could live under a basewood yeah. you could set it on fire <laughs> yeah or you could buy wood with the profits we should set it on fire no uh, alec are cartoonists depre- depressed people and or is drawing comics depressing i think yeah i mean i i think i think there's a paradigm shift happening right now which is that cartoonists who are coming up right now is the first generation of cartoonists in a long time that aren't depressed. I think they're like well-adjusted, affable, attractive uh, people that had like healthy social lives and enjoyed a wide range of um, activities, including cartooning. Um, you know, like I have friends where they have a young kid and like he's just reading comics. He's not a nerd who reads comics the same way like our generation or the generations before us. It was like this weird nerdy subculture um, it's just like oh just like a kid who plays sports and does all sorts of stuff and also reads comics so like if that child grew up to become a cartoonist they could be more well adjusted but yeah it's just like weird like you know I I, I research certain cartoonists um, for my lectures that I do as a teacher and just so many of them from the past um, uh, when you scratch below the surface it's just like oh my gosh so many depressed cartoonists and well let's just... talk about the story of Wallywood as like Ugh. a okay like here's a cautionary tale so you know I'm I'm isolated when I'm drawing comics mm-hmm. and each page takes at least six hours or something yeah and I, I'm, it's very laborious I draw everything new I don't trace anything I'm reinventing the wheel every time. So mm-hmm. will you tell us the tale of Wallywood? Well, just uh, the the thing for me was like, you know, everyone hands out the 21 panels that always work, 22 panels that always work yeah. by Wallywood as if like, you know, he was cognizant of what's going on now in comics, which is like there's this academic circuit and it's like, oh, I made this handout for you guys and I wanted it to be helpful or because whatever. Because he drew what? Uh, he drew like EC comics, some of the most detailed. You're saying six hours on a page. I mean, you look at a Wallywood page, he's got sci fi comics where it looks like, you know, 60 hours went into it. Yeah. All this amazing perspective and detail and 20 figures in it and all sorts of, you know, gaskets coming off of sci fi inventions and stuff or super detailed war story pages. Um, but uh, so it's like, I don't know, it's just like it was given to me and sort of handed out as if it's this cute. Um, sort of handout that he came up with but when you actually do the research on where it came out it was a tool for himself and it was basically saying knock it off stop putting all this extra work into stuff and um, you know just use these shortcuts uh, supposedly it was on his wall along with a quote that said don't draw anything you can copy don't copy anything you can trace don't trace anything you can cut out and paste up you can um, steal yeah and then you know if you research it it's very dark but well, you said at the end of his life, he said, if I had to do it again... I'd cut my hands off. <laughs> and he Unquote. killed himself. And then he killed himself. 
And Howard, or uh, Howard, uh, Gaines, whatever his name was, the guy who ran EC Comics and all that stuff, um, I'm blanking on his name, but he said, you know, Wallywood was maybe our most talented, but also our most disturbed artist. So... So, cartoonists, what do you think are some self-care tips? Because, like, you did a crazy book called Basewood, which we've discussed a little bit on the podcast, but Mm -hmm. you drew giant, you drew, like, 17 by 24, 18 18 by 24, 24. you grew a crazy beard, you were in complete isolation in Vermont. Let's not talk about it, it's, like, too depressing. But you were depressed, but now you've changed your style to have a more holistic... Yeah, so I would say some of the stuff that seems like it's not important actually is important, like the size that you're drawing and whether it's easy to scan that size, um, you know, whether it's easy to store that size, is it portable, all those things. I encourage what I do with my students after having survived Basewood um, is I, I focus on them teaching them how to draw smaller. So draw your character from head to toe, like a full uh, character drawing, and then practice drawing it half that size, half that size, half that size, until it's actually abstracted into like a little tiny silhouette of the character. Um, because if you can get comfortable drawing your character smaller, you can work on smaller Bristol, and then that's easier to scan and, mm-hmm. and doesn't take as long to draw. So um, you can be happier and more productive. I got to say, I learned that lesson from you about drawing big, mm-hmm. and I tried to go smaller for this book, and I'm hooked on drawing big. I can't go back, and it's a huge pain. Don't and say it, you can't go back, because as soon as you're done with that book, we're going to work on drawing small, and I'm going to get you on some smaller Bristol, and your next book is going to go twice as fast, and you'll never go back. I'll be like, what? what's a book? It sounds counterintuitive, but once you go small, you never go back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> Wait, do you have one last tip for cartoonists? Uh, yeah, just, uh, there's layers of learning. So one layer is that you're like looking at your comic and you're trying to work on all the complicated stuff that we have to do as cartoonists, you know, speech balloons, flow, the character design, you know, the dialogue, the writing, uh, pacing, all that kind of stuff. But there's a second layer, uh, which is observing how you're actually drawing the comic. You almost have to kind of have an out of body experience and watch yourself. It goes into how you set up your studio, Um, and just the physical act of drawing your comics. Um, So, you know, pay attention to that stuff. And I think especially if you're starting out, doing lots of little projects is the key because every time you finish a project, you can look back at it and say, how did I ink this? What tools was I using? You know, um, what was working? What wasn't working? And you can readjust before you commit to some giant 300-page project. Um, And if you can uh, get a little bit of... uh, efficiencies and little uh corrections to your process on those smaller projects then uh you know even if you just shave off let's say five minutes per page suddenly you're drawing a 300 page book and that's hours and hours and hours of your life yeah thanks alec thanks for being on the podcast thank you nicole mari naomi is the author of the books kiss and tell dragon's breath and turning japanese You can find her comics and her database of cartoonists of color and queer cartoonists at marinaomi.com. Today I decided the worst thing that could happen to me, one of the worst things would be for someone to hold me from behind while we were watching a concert. Like I was imagining that and I was like, ah, like my skin just started crawling. I almost tweeted it and then I was like, there's so many worse things actually going on in the world right now that it seems inappropriate to tweet about, but 
I was thinking about like one of the worst things that could happen to me would be. Why would that be so bad? I hate it. Just the close. I don't intimacy like or I, the... intimacy in public, mm. which is weird because all I do is draw vulnerable comics. I think because I dislike PDA because I feel like I'm making other people uncomfortable by imposing my thing on them. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's cute when couples make out. Really? Oh, I do not. To a a degree, when there's groping involved, then it's sort of... Well, it depends on where I am. If if it's in a park, I don't care. I I just think it's cute. If there's a park where I can walk by, that's fine. I think, like, if Look I'm... PDA. Someone's just... There's PDA right now. Tanya's licking her hand. <laughs> like, if I was, like, on the bus and people were like, you know... Or the bus I, is different because you can't escape. Like, or a concert where you're like, I just paid money. This is my spot. Mm. I don't want to move because I just staked out this spot. And now you guys are like... I just, but it bothers you. Is, is it worse if someone else is doing it or if you're doing it? Because if you're doing it, you probably have some... Um, some endorphins happening. If I, if I was like really sexed out, wanting to be gross with somebody, someone. I mean, I have before, but like, There's in a way, in a way creepier way. I don't know, like in a way creepier way than just being like we're enjoying Dave Matthews Band together. Just like, okay, now you just made it creepy. You're holding me from behind, and we're just kind of rocking to the music. Like that just sounds like the worst thing I can imagine. That really does sound pretty bad. <laughs> I went and saw Neutral Milk Hotel. Oh. I got there two hours early. I went by myself. I was standing on this bench because I'm like four feet tall. <laughs> five, five, two. So I stand on this bench and then there were these guys next to me. And at the last minute, these two like straight girl babes, like bros and babes kind of babes, mm. ran up and then charmed. They used a, a spell and charmed the men standing by me. And the men let them jump on our bench even though they didn't know them. And the girls were grind dancing to Nutrimoco Hotel. Oh, what? And their like grindingness was touching me and bumping into me while I was watching. And I was like, "This song's about Anne Frank. You can't do oh, that." Wait, why do bros listen to Nutrimoco Hotel? I didn't. I never thought I about who else would listen to it. I just assumed cool people. I don't know. I don't know, but it was Can really. It was a weird. It was a weird scene, and I got so aggro, and I was like, "I guess I can't. I can't go to big shows because I get weird." <laughs> That's an anomaly. I don't think that happens very often. Maybe that's just Portland. They're just keeping Portland weird in a way that's weirder than what you would imagine. You're like, that is legitimately weird. I, maybe they just won tickets from a, from a call-in or something. I, I, I just can't believe that they would be there on their own volition. Just being like, this guy rocks. <laughs> <laughs> this mentally ill guy on the accordion or whatever, this guy rocks. <laughs> Tell me, will you tell me about your database project? Oh, sure. Your databases? I was solicited to write an article for Midnight Breakfast. What is Midnight Breakfast? It's a literary magazine online. They asked if I wanted to do something, and I said, sure. And I think I came up with some other idea and and presented it a pitch, and, and I, I don't remember that. Anyway, at that time... Something happened. There was some... Oh, that's right. There was an article that came out, and it might have been for BuzzFeed. Maybe it was for somewhere else. I think it was for BuzzFeed, where it said, 12 women cartoonists say this. And so, of course, I'm interested in this. Uh, 12 women cartoonists... Yeah, it was something that was very relevant to me. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, my first thought is, I'm a woman cartoonist, like, what do these other women cartoonists think? And I looked, and they were all white. And I thought, oh, 
12 white women cartoonists and and I think I that was the only snarky tweet I've ever done to somebody I didn't know it was kind of rude but did I, you tweet it, at them maybe <laughs> you tweeted possibly here's a here's an alternate title for you. <laughs> I later found out that one of them isn't white she's Arabic oh. but anyway so I decided to write about race a little bit and around the same time a friend of mine had written in manuscript and I was reading it and her novel was filled with white people and it was in a situation and a time and place where it wouldn't have been the case there would have been other people and so this this got me the spark the article that I ended up writing which was how to write people of color if you're happen to be a person of another color mm-hmm. um, so for white people and other people this is for everybody and I don't have the answers but I, I thought it was an interesting thing to talk about, so I sort of t- I talked about my own experiences, and then I thought, oh, I'll ask some people of color, and who do I know? I might as well ask more storytellers, cartoonists in specific, because we are also drawing people of color and other colors, etc. So I thought, how many who who can I go to about this? And I maybe listed five people, and thought, well, it'd be nice to get a dozen people. And, who are the people of color in comics? And I think I think I managed to get about 12 people. And I thought, you know, there's got to be more than this. And so I did some internet research, and there was nothing online. I think I found one website where it, it talks about people of color in comics, and it was just a website with, that talked about, like, these five black guys. I'm like, okay, come on. There's, there's got to be better than this. And I, yeah. so I started crowdsourcing on Twitter. And this was just all for myself. I just wanted to know... For, like who are these people and 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 I long heard that you know there's no woman in comics and there's no people of color in comics and so the more people just shot back at me with these names and, and so for my the 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 more my head kind of exploded it was it was really exciting and so I was writing down these names and at this point it was more of an obsession than for the article where I was writing these names down in in a word document and and oh, I should check out their Twitter and check out their websites. And yeah, Twitter was very helpful. And all these people just chimed in, and that was really great. And after I got, I think after my list hit past thirty, I thought, okay, I'm do I, do I have these people twice in here? I should put make this into an Excel file. So I started a spreadsheet, and then it kept growing. And then there were a hundred, and I thought someone's wow, someone should really put this together on the internet. This is ridiculous. This doesn't exist. And it was really annoying because I was kind of on a deadline, but then I realized at that point that I had to do it because no one else was going to do it. And I, yeah, reluctantly, I guess I got to do this. And so, yeah, I spent just so much time uh, putting that together. But there's almost a 1,000 people on there now, which is just insane. Cartoonistofcolor.com is... That that URL, but I mean it's 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 a slog. It's it's really boring work, and and I've put so many hours into it. But I just hear all these great stories. I'm not going to start talking about them because I cry every time I talk about them. Where just these great success stories. I'm getting very clumped already. Just thinking about them. I'm not even talking about them. Where I hear about all these people who get jobs and their first gallery shows and get on panels and like. Baby, <laughs> because people use the database and yeah. then people found them that way and gave them opportunities. Yeah, yeah, which is holy crap, it's working. Yay. That's so cool. Well, because you know, I mean, you've been in comics a long time. 
How long have you been making comics? Like 20 years, 25 years. So almost 20. Like 20 years, basically, you've been making comics. And, I mean, you know, as well as I know, comics has this reputation for being a straight white dude sport, basically. But the people that are reporting that are straight white dudes. Mm -hmm. Straight white dudes are reporting that that straight white dudes are the most important people in comics. I mean, the Angle M thing. Oh, yeah. You were there. Yes. That's right. I I was nominated for... I I was at Angle M. It was so... I actually was just looking at my video last night from the... um, For people that don't know, I've only talked about it, I think, one time on the podcast, the controversy, but... You know, Angoulême is like this industry, um, these industry awards that are huge and very important, like worldwide, like one of the most prestigious uh, comics shows. And they had, they, they had like this like Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was like the most prestigious award in comics. And they had 30 people that were up for this Lifetime Achievement Award, and they were all men. And so these other people, these American guys, and I'm sure some French guys, but I just don't know them, but American guys that I know and respect, like Dan Clouser, Chris Ware, uh, withdrew their names. That was so great. Publicly came out. I mean, it was one thing. It was like, Angoulême put this out. This feminist collective there in France was like, there needs to be a boycott. So they started launching this boycott. People kind of listened. Then they got some of these guys to speak on the subject and then everyone was like oh a man's talking we're really listening so it was like both because that's also was a French guy who started the exodus mm. I think, if I remember right but so so these, the guy, these guys put out these publicity statements saying like this is an embarrassment I think Dan Klaus said this is an embarrassment um, I don't want my name to be on this list if they're excluding women and so all these people withdrew but Angoulême just like they held the, they <laughs> held the line they were like, no, no, we are correct. And so they, well, so the guy said, uh, you know, the thing is, they're just, it's, it's a career, it's an award for a very mature cartoonist with a big body of work. And the thing is, there just aren't that many women that make comics. And you know what? There aren't that many women artists. Even if you go to the Louvre, there aren't that many women <laughs> whose art is displayed. <laughs> oh, so horrible. So then everyone's feminist heads exploded <laughs> and everyone descended on Angoulême and was like, you're crazy. Crazy! This is crazy, and I was so excited because I got my book got nominated for an award on the limb, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And then I was going there, and I was I I love being in the middle of this kind of mess because it, this is the kind of mess I can speak to, you know. Uh, I don't even have to just be an ally. I can be me and be like, you know, let's fucking wear gorilla girls masks and storm the castle and fuck this. And but I went and I, I mean, I totally was very happy to enjoy the luxurious things that they offered me as someone that whatever was um there and and i got to go to the award ceremony which was luxurious things well okay because because my book was nominated i got a vip wristband (laughs) (laughs) which in america nobody really cares about me comics wise like no one really cares and they don't like me that much like any writing that happens about my books in comics criticism is generally pretty bad or hardly at all like not a lot of comics criticism is like way to go nicole they're usually like "Eh, she's too twee or (laughs) anyway so i actually just don't even look at it but so i went there and i got treated like a royalty they give me a vip wristband which you don't have to do much just give me a wristband (laughs) but they let me in this lounge where there was um like free cognac cocktails like i interviewed noah van skyver at a piano in this fucking crazy (laughs) piano bar vip lounge with like dudes wearing suits that were official comics gentlemen 
And I mean, I was like, oh, VIP, please, like, just let me go wherever I wanted to do. Yeah, wow. I, anyway, it was very lovely. And so I definitely was sucking at the teat of the man. <laughs> but I was happy to do so. I was like, these are my reparations. All right, I don't know what. This anyone is- should be sucking the teat, it's you. Thanks. <laughs> but I was like, this is what I get for, I don't know what. Um, and then I went to the awards ceremony. It was all in French. I couldn't understand any of it. And it was when they had a fake... They made it worse by having fake awards. Where oh, they that's pre- right. I heard about that. They that pretended terrible. like all these people won, but then they were like, psych. Oh, my God. And so then those people didn't win, but people had already been tweeting them and writing them and saying, congratulations, you won at Angoulême. And then they're oh. like, just kidding, none of you won. And it was including people of color and so women. So humiliating. And then they're like, JK, JK, the person who won is this white guy. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, so that was the Angoulême experience. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I could see that doing that to someone I really, really hated. <laughs> well, like like Aaron Renier. Like, totally, you know, oh, he got... Right. Walker Bean got nominated, and then his was one of, like, the fake-out... Oh, the fake-out books. That's terrible. Anyway, it was a pleasure to go there, and my French publisher was really cool, and it was nice to meet French people that care about comics, mm. that treat them as serious art. It was awesome. Yeah, that's so weird. I don't know if you saw... It. This thing that's been going around, Jennifer Aniston was on Huffington Post talking about, and it's, it's really everyone's saying, oh, this is so great, where she's talking about just this, the whole patriarchal notion that women should do this, they should look this way, they should have babies, they should do whatever, So, and she kind of spoke out against that, or they yeah. should be married, you know, they're they're all in her business, I mean, she they're all in her business a lot, but, yeah. and I was reading it, and thinking, yeah, go Jennifer, and then she wrote this thing one little sentence that made me stop reading. She said, oh, well, people think that such and such is unimportant, like comics. I'm like, why, why, why did she do this? I had this, perhaps she just killed my fantasy that maybe she read my comics. Were you like, you mean you read comics and then the most important thing? Is that what you're talking about? It kind of broke my heart. I'm like, why, why? She didn't even have to say that. Like, why, why is that analogy necessary? Jennifer, you break my heart. Rude. <laughs> but you make important comics. So, will you tell us about your new book? Oh, turning... I don't know if i call it important, but hopefully of course. it's entertaining. I think that there's nobody like you. What? You know? Like, you're a unique voice telling really? your, a story from your perspective. It's really valuable. Everybody is, though. But everybody but everybody has a totally different viewpoint, and you are telling your own story. Anyway. We're all very important. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> some comics I'd be like eh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my new book is called Turning Japanese and it's um, oh, Murray. it's a book about when I was 22 years old and I decided that I wanted to get in touch with my Japanese side of my culture I'm half Japanese and my mom never taught me Japanese or my sister she never talked about culture or race or anything like that and I grew up in a very white town so I just I had no connection to that part of myself, and I really wanted it. I especially wanted to be able to talk to her side of the fa- oh, gosh, this dog, talk to her side of the family without her as a translator, mm-hmm. because I knew she was editing out my personality for some reason. And so I decided that I was going to learn Japanese, and I was going to do so by working at a Japanese hostess bar, which was basically a bunch of expats. Because hostess bars are very common in Japan. It's where um, where you just it's like a glorified bartender. These women sit with you, make conversation. They keep you drinking. Basically, they mm-hmm. light your cigarettes, fill your drinks. 
maybe sing karaoke with you, slow dance with you, maybe play gambling games, but basically just keep you entertained, especially for large business groups where it's awkward, it's a company party, so they just keep the conversation going. Or if you're talking, they just sit in the background and pour your drink. So it was just an entertainer, like an entertaining mm-hmm. bartender. And I was 22, and the thought of drinking for a living, because you get to drink, and being able to smoke on the job, because you could do that back then, and I, I did that back then, and having a night job, because I was a night person, it all sounded perfect, and on top of that, and I, and I love to socialize, and I just thought, oh, I can get, I can learn about the culture from these people, and, and learn the language, and it just seemed like the dream job for me at the time. Uh, it wasn't that great for someone who likes to think of herself as a strong, independent woman, not dependent on men, etc. It was a little challenging, but but that's what the book's about, is, is the process of me doing this with the intention of going to Japan and living there and then being a hostess there, mm-hmm. all in preparation to meet my parent, my mom's side of the family for the millionth time, but for the first time with my own voice. So that's what the book's about. Cool. <laughs> it was it was an adventure. It's it's kind of a stranger in a strange land sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, spoiler: I didn't exactly connect with the culture, and it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be when I was twenty two years old. Mm-hmm. First of all, you can't learn a language from drunk people. You just can't. <laughs> so you have like a drunk accent. People are like, "What's that?" <laughs> <laughs> oh. No one wanted to teach me Japanese. They were there to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. But life lessons, hard learned. And it's also about my relationship with my mom and this big mystery of why didn't she teach me Japanese, which if you read through the book really fast, I've talked to a couple of people who read through the book and they didn't see the answer, but it's kind of hidden in there where you have to really look for it. Because, I mean, I never... That didn't exactly resolve for me. I still have questions that I don't think she could even answer about that. Mm-hmm. Why do we do the things we do? Why are we afraid of the things that we're afraid of? But I did come to a, a much deeper understanding about her relationship with her family and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Cool. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's my first book that's hardcover, which nice. is very exciting. And it's also the first book where... Instead of a series of short stories, it's one long story. Although it is kind of broken up into vignettes at times. Yeah, yeah. What do you think... So you've drawn yourself in sexual situations. (laughs) You've drawn yourself uh, in drug kind of situations. And then then in family (laughs) situations, you know, like sticky or vulnerable family situations. What What was the hardest? Or was there one that was like the hardest to draw... Every so often, I'll be drawing my mom, and I'll be drawing her boob, and I'll feel really weird about it. <laughs> drawing your mom's boob? Yeah. You know, where you're just drawing, you're not even thinking about it, and you're like, oh, I'm drawing my mom's crotch. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Just get it, get it. Just go past this, or your friend, or an ex, who you don't feel that way towards. Perhaps your friends now, but then you have to draw yourself in these romantic situations. Mm-hmm. It's a little awkward. I try not to think about it. Usually by the time I'm inking, I'm listening to podcasts or, or something mm-hmm. else and being distracted. But but if I think about it, uh, the most awkward thing that I ever had was after I'd drawn everything for Kiss and Tell, 
And I, I Which had, is your book about dating and romance. Yes. That was the first book, and it was about to go out into the world, and I was meeting with my editor, and I was showing, I, I keep all my pages, in, in, like like you do, in sleeves, like so I can see what it's like mm-hmm. for continuity when you're turning the pages. It's, it's like it's an actual book. And so she had it turned to the, the last page of Kiss and Tell, which is a, just a picture of me spread eagle and naked. Mm-hmm. And and when I drew that, I, didn't, I don't think I felt that awkward about it. But we, but we went through the, the whole thing together, and then we, she turned and started talking to me, and we were just talking about the book. And it was kind of weird talking about me myself in third person. And I was so aware that my crotch was just sitting there next to her elbow. <laughs> and I think I finally said something, saying, uh, can we close that book? Because does it feel like, to me, it feels, it's like real. <laughs> it's like you made it, like, that's your crotch. Like that's not. Yeah, I was even drawn realistically too. Whereas it's usually not. Yeah, like that's not like you can't. You're not just like, oh, that's just like a drawing. You're like, that's my crotch. (laughs) Like I just imbued that image with my crotch essence. (laughs) That's by your elbow. I don't know. I was talking to Phoebe Gwecker, and she was talking about how it's almost like um, you're almost fetishizing something. Like you're just putting so much energy into something, Mm. spending so much time on it, like rendering it, creating it. Like rehashing it. That I think a lot about everything that we draw. I mean, like any of those things, like any of those bad dates you've been on or whatever. Like you might, as a human being, be way past that in mm. your life. But you're going. You have to revisit that and go back there. Relive it and then pick it apart and spend time with that so person again mm-hmm. by yourself in your head. I was. Uh, I did some reading with John Porcelino, who came out with that book, The Hospital Suite. It was last year. Anyway, we, we we did a reading together, and he had he was playing parts of his documentary. This was in Portland, I think it was. I was there. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. And and he afterwards, I asked him like, how could you, like that like the stuff that he would have had to relive in order to write that book? That book is traumatizing, and I didn't live through it. Like I couldn't even imagine having to revisit that without triggering all these things because that happens definitely when I'm writing about something traumatic it you know the word trigger I think is being overused but I you know but you're you're there you're feeling those feelings there's a scene in turning Japanese where I I had this long episode of panic attacks and I was drawing about it and I did it but I was kind of worried in a superstitious sort of way that it would start this up again that had it been dormant for 20 years because you never know mm-hmm. what's going to start something like that. And so for he, he was definitely talking about OCD type stuff. And, yeah. and I asked him later, and I said, how do you deal with that? How could you have this movie playing every night or this tour? He's like, oh, I just zone out. <laughs> I think you have to, though. Oh, like, yeah. To, to write the book even, though. Oof. I was telling, to me, I always feel like it's like in Lord of the Rings when Frodo puts on the ring and then it's like, you know, like he like puts on the ring and he's like engulfed in this weird cloud and everything's weird and slowed down. That's how it feels to me. And so then I actually always have a, I always ask people like how they reintegrate after into their lives after doing that. So like if you've been home all day drawing about a bad relationship or panic attacks or something and then your husband comes home and he's like in a mellow headspace from being a normal person with a normal <laughs> job and he's like hey how's it going and you're like yeah like Beth Pickens got that scary writer's face like, he comes up you have a scary writer face <laughs> you know when you say that I imagine she's she's describing Allie yeah 
like Allie's like has like an eye twitch and is tweak. She's just been reliving like the worst moment of her life. Like God. it's just hard to think. How do you get out of that? I don't know. I think I kind of just scowl and bumble around for a while, and that's how I get out of it. There's, I mean, you have to do something to offset that. You can't just write depressing comics. You'll just <laughs> destroy yourself. When I was writing Dragon's Breath I, for the Rumpus, yeah. that was really hard because I was seeking out the most painful stories that I could find, except for the one that I just put out yesterday, which you have to read about chickens. chickens. Yes. Uh, but I was, I was specifically mining my memories for really things that I that were painful for me to share because I just wanted to see how far I could take it yeah and it was so hard that I had to when someone else approached me to do another comic I just thought what's like the silliest most vapid thing I could do and I ended up with this comic called said while talking which were just silly things that me and Gary have said to each other yeah. in the day and I mean they're really goofy or this one time I was dating this vegan guy and he wouldn't go down on me because it seemed like it wasn't very vegan quote unquote oh my god I, can, can I go back in time and slap him oh my god <laughs> I don't know if he's seen this comic I kind of want to send it to him but it did really well really <laughs> they released it on Valentine's Day and I, they were having a contest at the time to see who can get a lot of hits for their site because they were a brand new site it was Topastic and um I ended up making a lot of money off of that comic just because cool. I, I think I I was trying everything too. I went on like Reddit and 4chan and stuff like because I didn't know and I'm like I'll, I'll put it out there and even if it's negative at least they're clicking through and I'll be making money for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was like tiers. If you get X number of clicks and you hit this tier and all anyway, it, it did really well. But I I but aside from that, sorry that I veered off the path. What that totally saved my life because I was getting so depressed. I would, I was just crying all day. It was terrible. Yeah, like I'll totally cry while I'm drawing something that's sad. It's kind of, it's helpful because I think I have a little bit of a delayed reaction to trauma sometimes or like oh, sad yeah. things sometimes. So this is just like, Hey, you thought you could outrun that? Well, let's just <laughs> spend like 400 hours reliving it. Why don't we just you and me? That's me talking to myself. <laughs> It's just like that. No stone is going to go unturned. You did you you broke your hands? Well, so so I was I did this whole twelve city book tour, and phase one was on the east coast in Toronto, New York, etc. And then came home for a week, and then I went back out to the Midwest and, and in the Midwest I was going to rent a car and, and just make this big circle to all these different places and it was two days before I was supposed to leave and I was going for my morning jog and a block and a half away from my house I tripped and fell which is amazing that it, this hasn't happened every day but ever before and there's this whole just surreal very very long th- period of time in my head where I, I was going down and thinking, okay, do I sacrifice my face or my hands, my face or my hands, my face or my hands, but put my hands out, you know, instinctively and instinctually, instinctively, anyway, instinctively. Um, I put my hands out and hurt them, obviously, and, and, and as soon as I, I'm getting up, I'm like, why did I choose my hands? Like, this, this is my bread and butter, Who, my face isn't paying the bills. I, I'm super mad. Not like my hands are either, but <laughs> uh, so I didn't 
so I picked myself up and I just walked home and I'm super humiliated because there's all this traffic. They all saw me do that, but also I'm terrified because I'm going on a signing tour in two days and I am watching my hands puff up and turn blue and I and I couldn't feel them yet. I was in shock. Oh my god. And I'm like, well, maybe this won't be so bad. I'm just watching them grow and grow and I'm like, oh no. I think I broke my right hand, but you know, I could do this one handed. Fine. And then that day, I think it was that day, my friend Yumi Sakigawa came over for a drawing day. I think she was maybe concerned about me. So she comes over and draws. I'm like, that's fine. My left hand doesn't hurt as much, so I'll just draw with that. So I, start, I was drawing with my left hand. She's like, are you sure you don't want to go to the doctor? Are you ambidextrous? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just wondering. Okay. No, I wish. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, doctor, I can't, I can't have broken hands. I can't. Like, this is, I'm leading. I, I, I'm carrying suitcases. I'm driving. I can't have broken hands. You were using the secret. <laughs> so the next day, I have another friend coming over, and she's like, you got to go. <laughs> and, I, and it was hurting more. I think it took about eight hours before I really felt the pain. I mean, because I was icing it and everything, but it just started hurting so much. So the next day I go to the doctor and it was like a six hour process. I got x-rays and it turned out that I didn't break my right hand. I broke my left hand, uh, my wrist. There's a little piece of bone floating around in there. And then I sprained my right hand, which still hurts. And it hurt more than my left hand and it consistently did. Uh, So yeah, that was really stupid. I talked about giving me a cast or anything. So I had a, what do you call those, a... a removable cast thing uh-huh. on my hand on my left hand, and then I had a splint on my right hand, which I mostly I would have them on because if I didn't have them on, I would forget that I was hurt, and then I would go reach for something and go ah, oh god. <laughs> and also when I when I was about to do a signing, when I was driving, I had them off because I felt it was too dangerous because I was too stiff. But when I was signing things, I couldn't sign because my I can't I couldn't write. But, you know, sometimes I would grab the pen and just kind of scribble in, in the Charles Schultz sort of way in his later years. It doesn't look like my signature. So I would kiss books because I could yeah. have lipstick. I don't know. That's I, nice. I to think it's something to do. It's yeah. very expensive with the lipstick that I have. Oh, yeah. You'd have to get some cheap lipstick for that. <laughs> I should have done that. But, uh, but what I found is if I didn't have my cast things on when, when I did signings, people would shake my hand. And <gasps> there were a number of times where it was like, Oh, nice to meet you, crunch. And I just, like, I would double over it. (laughs) So, yeah, I had that on. But I didn't want to, like, get stinky. And it was was really... That's a nightmare. Um, Okay, the last question I want to ask you is about your techniques. Okay. (laughs) What tools do you use? And what are your opinions of lettering on lettering? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did mention earlier that I'm obsessed with lettering. But it was it's weird because I used to hate lettering. It used to be my least favorite part of things. But I'm kind of, I'm pretty staunchly against the, the handwritten font look because I just don't like reading it. Mm-hmm. The whole inc- Uncanny Valley thing where I feel like, oh, all the E's look the same. And it oh, just yeah, bothers yeah. me a little bit. Um, um, but once I started drawing with graph paper for my pencil, so I have this whole process where it's very involved, but in, but it ensures that I just don't get too precious about the artwork. When I started doing comics, I I think I had the big like comics boards with the blue lines and stuff that was very expensive yeah, to yeah. get. And I, I I saw oh this is how you're supposed to do it. 
but now I think it was Justin Hall suggested it to me to oh maybe you should uh, pencil on graph paper you could get those squares really easily and it just made so much sense to me yeah. that, that I would pencil on a different piece of paper than the inking because I get so precious about it sometimes I'm so scared to ink that I just I don't take any risks or anything so so what I do is I pencil on graph paper at the size that it's going to be when it's done so that way I know that the the text will be legible to me and my rapidly declining eyes <laughs> it's becoming more and more important and then I blow it up to as big as it can get print out on my printer which is eight and a half by ten or whatever mm-hmm. that is and so I blow it up and then I put it on the light box and with a piece of bleed proof paper mm. very important then I ink and I ink with well, I have a, a bunch of different pens but I'll usually use a number of Japanese brush pens for the inking and then get in with the uh, really fine point markers for the details mm-hmm. stuff like that I have a special lettering pen which makes all the difference what's your special lettering pen? it's a I, I spent money on it and I've spent money on pens before but this one's really special it wasn't the most I've ever spent on a pen but it was the best I've ever spent on a pen. It's a, it's a, sailor, a sailor Regulus, I think it's called. It's orange. It's a fountain pen. And it's... How much was it? I don't think it... Well, I bought it in, in Japan. So mm-hmm. I don't know what the... I think it was 70 bucks or something. Wow. Which is a lot. I've never spent that much on a pen. That sounds really cool. It was... But it, it It's makes, like getting married. It is. It is. And, it's, and I just feel so happy when I use it. And it, it's, it's... It's so great. And it... So for this chicken comic that I just came out with yesterday, I thought I would, I didn't feel like cleaning my sailor pen. And I thought, well, I'm pretty good at this. I'll just, this is a short comic. I'll just use this other pen that's just lying around. I think I got through half of it. And also my hands are still broken a little. So I was doing this drawing and it was very painful to draw. And and I was using this pen that I don't love and about halfway through it I was just regretting it so bad this feels terrible I hate I remember now why I hated lettering but I, yeah. I can't stop now because I'll have to do it all over and my hand hurts blah. Uh, but it turned out okay it, look, it looks good but it was just very frustrating and I will never never forsake you again my sailor pen <laughs> I'm so interested in that pen it's um God, I, there's something about the flow of the ink that comes out because I, I use so many pens I try out pens constantly all the time I'm I'm like a really fickle lover with all my instruments I'm always trying new ones I'm, I'm wow. ready to ditch everyone as I did the other day I just don't feel like cleaning you so I'm just gonna go yeah. with this other pen but, I just broke up with Rapidograph oh. or we're on a break but I mean I was monogamous for so long. For lettering and for my panel borders and for fine lines of different rapidographs. What changed, Nicole? What changed? <laughs> Rapidograph wasn't serving me well anymore. And then I tried getting different ones. And then they also were, it was stressing, it was stressing my hands out too much. And it was stressing me out because I was like hitting them against uh, the board yeah. all the time, trying to get the ink to start going oh, again. Sucks. I can't deal with that kind of, that yeah. kind of stress. It was offering me, you know, maybe it was like red flags, like choices I wouldn't make now that I made in the past when I was choosing a pen. Um, was it, is, is that always, like, I've never used a rapidographer. I feel like maybe I've tried one once and maybe, maybe it didn't flow. So I thought I got a bad one. They all are. They're. Fuck them. Just, <laughs> Why do so many people use them? 
Because they're refillable and they're actually so nice. Like they're such nice technical pens. Mm. But and I, any we could talk about this. But they, <laughs> they started doing me wrong, and then I had to be like, mm. I don't want to leave you. Okay, I'm trying. This is as much energy as I have to put into this, but you're not giving back. They weren't meeting me halfway for the amount that I was trying. And then I even wrote to the company, and they didn't write me back, and that was the last straw. Because I was like, I don't have time for this shit. I don't have time to wait around for you to make up your mind, Rapidograph. I got to go. I got a book to finish. You don't think it was the ink, do you? I feel like... I buy special Rapidograph ink. It's like... I have a fountain pen that I actually spent more money on than the Sailor. It was... And it does that. It, it clots or whatever. It's, it's so it's so infuriating. I well, because I for a long time I forsook micron pens because there's nothing more infuriating to me than one of those pens crapping out like in the middle of the night when you take oh, another yeah. one. Well, and you're you in a have project. To have so you have to have like a million of these disposable pens <laughs> so that you could just throw it over your shoulder and grab another, which is just so wasteful and whatever. And so I've always been like, yeah, they're lovely to draw with, but come on, I need something sustainable. But so then, Rapidograph was dig. I was like, I'm going back to the old, <laughs> the old hit it and quit it. They do have, uh, it's it's almost like the Micron. They're called Cop. They're they're Copic. Yeah. But they're like Microns, and they come in even smaller sizes, and they're refillable. A student was just mentioning that yesterday. They're pretty nice. Like, oh, interesting. Their their ink is even a little nicer than the Micron ink. I I feel the Micron ink kind of sucks too. Yeah. Do you have any last tips for young cartoonists? Or up-and-coming cartoonists. Don't listen to what other people think about or say that comics should be. Just write what's in your heart. Yes. I agree with you. I think that's good advice. I've been doing some mentoring lately for schools, and I feel like that's what trips people up the most is if they have these ideals, or not even ideals, but these, these thoughts imposed by their fellow students. Oh, you should be very dynamic when you're drawing or oh you should do this or that or you need this or this sucks or this is great or you need more sci-fi I mean people Mm -hmm. listen to the stupidest shit (laughs) but just tell your story and have fun with it because if you're not having fun with it the reader will know they will will feel you're not fun and also it's kind of like you're getting married to the style like you have to do that thing so much that if you don't like doing it oh God, first, <laughs> you're going to be having a horrible rest of your life. Because I even like the way I draw, and I still hate doing it sometimes. Yeah. You know, if you do it enough, and you're just like... If you have to, also. <laughs> you're like, this is so fucking boring. I can't... Drawing is so fucking boring. And then you have there have to be enjoyable parts about it to me to mm. keep, like, ooh, but soon I get to draw hair. <laughs> you know, or like, ooh, I get to draw the stripes and the sweater, or that kind oh, of thing. Yeah. Like, I get to draw a pair of nurse shoes. That will help me draw this, like, table and chairs. <laughs> or, like, car. Like, this... Like, if I look up this picture of a car online and have to draw a car, then I get to draw a dog in the car. Oh, like, nice. Like, I have a carrot oh, on a stick. That's great. To do these parts. But anyway, so I can imagine, like, if you have a style that's not your own that you just took on because you thought it's what you should do. Yeah, yeah. That sounds really shitty. Thank you for coming over. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. You're welcome. Oh, where can people get your book? Uh, mynaome.com. Marinaomi.com. <laughs> M-A-R-I-N-A-O-M-I.com. Yes. <laughs>
Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.